morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Welcome to our time together. As Jonathan said, welcome to this time of studying God's Word, of being together in worship, fellowship, receiving new members. All of these are joyful occasions which we look forward to each week and for which we give great thanks. Uh, I'm thankful to be here with you this morning. Susan is not able to come today because she picked up a cold and uh, our daughter Grace has one, and so I guess it's one of those family things that we just share over and over again with one another, and it goes round and round this time of year. But anyway, it's good to be with you. Um, Susan would have been here, of course, if she could, and, and she uh, wants me to tell you that uh, certainly she missed being here with you and missed the fellowship. We're going to look today at... Um, Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and join me in looking at verses 24 to 33, and then verse 44 through 52. Uh, as we look at this, we're focusing on the kingdom of God. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ was very careful to teach us many parables about, uh, about the kingdom of God, so it's very important for us to know. Uh, he spent so much time in bringing the kingdom of God before us that we need to know what it is, what our place in it is, and how we can be grounded in that kingdom. So we're going to look today at, for our scripture reading at Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24, and I'll read through 33. This is God's Word. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? He said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn." He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air may come and rest uh, and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now skip down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. 
And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out from the wicked and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of heaven is like the head of the household who brings out of his treasure things both new and old. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us the joy of being together on your day. We thank you that the Lord's Day is a different day from all the other six. It is a day that's set apart, that we can spend time praying, that we can spend time in fellowship, that we can spend time in worship. That, Father, you can lead us and guide us into your truth, that you can help us to develop real wisdom. And we pray that not only will we see these things this morning about the kingdom, but that we will love your kingdom, that we will love your church, that we will love your people, and that we'll love, Father, the works that you give us to do. And we pray that you would guide us and help us this morning. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is our teacher, and we pray that he will make applications to our own hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. A few weeks ago when we started our study of wisdom, we were talking about what wisdom is and how you get it. <clears throat> we saw that wisdom is not something that you can do a, just a, a, a three-point plan and all of a sudden you're wisdom. You, you have wisdom and you're, you've become wise. We see that wisdom is something that you gain over time, that it's something that you develop as you study the scriptures as you pray, as you live by faith, <clears throat> as you appropriate all the blessings of uh, God's <clears throat> blessing to you and your life. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not like a slot machine where you put in a quarter and you pull down the thing and all of a sudden you get wisdom rolling out and you take it and it becomes yours. You know, wisdom is something that uh, is acquired and it helps us deal with the complexities of life. Because life is complex, isn't it? It's, it's not easy. It's not simple. Life is difficult, sometimes hard to understand. And having real wisdom to apply God's wisdom to every situation is a must for us as believers. Well, today we want to look at the fact that real wisdom can come to us, but we need that wisdom to understand simple things and complex things like one of which is the kingdom of God. You know, we saw that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the scripture says a good understanding have all those who keep his commandments. So the beginning where we start to understand the kingdom of God is of course in the fear, the awe, the worship, the reverence that we have for the God of the Bible. 
and understanding him. And of course, Jesus, as God the Son, is giving us his teaching. So when he takes as much time as he's taken in the Gospels, particularly this chapter of Matthew, to tell us what the kingdom of God is, it's important for us then to pay real close attention to what he's saying. To see what he says, because he, he uses at least six times in this chapter alone where he says, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. So Jesus is teaching us these parables to explain to us what the kingdom of God is like. And he used these parables for illustration to help us kind of put in place what it was like to understand. Now we live in such a secular society where it's normal for people to want to live their lives without any reference to God. It's very normal in our society because of our secular, the secular focus we see for people just to want to live on the basis of just what we would call the world's wisdom. But we find out that that can be so unsatisfying that many times when you, when you look at people's lives who seemingly had everything, they had perhaps fame, they had perhaps money, they had perhaps success in whatever chosen field they were in, and yet often they, they come away from life being very unsatisfied and unfulfilled. Years ago, you remember, probably some of you remember, there was a, a singer by the name of Peggy Lee, and she sang a song called, Is That All There Is? In other words, is that all there is to life? It's kind of viewed from the point of somebody later in life who's lived for a while and looks around and says, is this all there is to life? Isn't life something more? Shouldn't it be more than this? And many people in our day do feel like that. You know, is this all there is to life? Is life just getting up and going to work and coming home and eating and going to bed and doing it over and over again? Is that all there is to life? The Lord Jesus Christ is telling us, no, there's more to life. The Lord Jesus Christ says there is a life to be had with Him. And there is an eternal life, a life to be had with Him forever. An eternal life that has greater promise than we can imagine even now. You know, He says, things which the eyes seen, the ear has heard, which have not even entered the heart of man. You know, we can't understand these things yet until we get to be with the Lord. But the kingdom of God is far greater than we can imagine. There is an ultimate hope for humanity. And Jesus says, yes, it is. And he talked about it when he talked about the kingdom of God. So I want to look with you this morning at some of the things that Jesus says about the kingdom of God. I want us to hear his teaching. And I want us to take in some of these things about the kingdom. Because I think they're so important for us and for those that we meet. I want us to look at basically four things this morning. One is the longing for the kingdom. The second is the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. The third is what did Jesus say about the kingdom of God and its growth. And then for us to be in the kingdom of God means that we must be anchored on the rock. So let's start. I want you to think about how much the people of Israel longed for the kingdom. I mean, you can imagine how they would long for the kingdom. Think about the fact that 
for some years they had been under the dominion, under the thumb of the Roman government. The Roman government had prescribed everything for them. The Roman government set up a puppet king that would be over them. The Roman government determined their culture. The Roman government uh, even told them at Christmas time, we thought about the census, which the government demanded to be taken, taking place. Rome controlled their economics. Rome controlled taxation. Rome controlled everything about their life. And as you can imagine, the, uh, the people of Israel were ready to throw off Rome. They were ready to get rid of Rome. They wanted to be their own people. I mean, how would we feel if we were under the dominion of the Soviet Union? How would we feel if the Soviet Union determined where we worked and when we worked and how we worked and how our families were raised and whether we could believe in God or not or whether uh, we could keep this portion of our money or not? You see, we would understand a little bit of what it was like to be under the thumb of Rome and how they felt if we were under such a situation. Well, they didn't like it. They were ready to throw off Rome. And they had people that came along every now and again who claimed to be the Messiah, the king, the new king that would throw off Rome, the one that would raise up the people and then they would rebel and they would throw off Rome and they would win. But every time those people came forward, you know what happened. Rome took care of them. Rome got rid of them. And they didn't last for long. There was this longing that the people had to be free. There was this longing that they had to have something different than what they had under Rome. When you think about it, there were some people in the, in the crowd that were not just thinking about throwing off Rome because of its politics or its cultural domination or its taxation. But there were a lot of people that wanted to get rid of Rome so that they could be under the true king. There were people who were spiritual people within the nation of Israel, just like we think about at the time of, of Jesus' birth, like Anna and Simeon. There were people like Nicodemus who was evidently later longing for the kingdom. There were people like Joseph of Arimathea. And they were looking forward to the kingdom coming that was the real kingdom. The kingdom where they would be set free. The kingdom where they could love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love their neighbors as themselves. There was a time that these people were ready for. They were ready for a new age. They were ready for deliverance. They were ready for the speedy coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They were ready for somebody to deliver them from not just domination by a Roman government, but from things like sickness and death and sorrow and suffering and pain. And boy, we can say amen to that. We can say amen to that. How we would like for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come and to deliver us from all those things that we can't be delivered from in this life. We want God to send His perfect King and bring in His kingdom and have a perfect righteousness when we'll be done with injustice and hatred and broken hearts and racism and sadness and fear and sickness 
and worries and death. That would be nice. We look forward to that day. Well, Jesus, you see, came to begin the coming. Jesus came to introduce the kingdom of God. Jesus came to tell us what the kingdom of God was like and help us by destroying the grip of death and hell and by dying himself to cover our sins so that we could be free, so that we could have a relationship with God, so that we could have entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, uh, is it any wonder that there were crowds of thousands that followed Jesus? Because Jesus was talking about a kingdom that was greater than anything that they could imagine. Jesus was talking about the true king coming, about a kingdom coming where all those bad things would be gone and would be done away with forever. And that's what they kept asking. Lord, is it time for the kingdom? Is it time yet for the kingdom? Will you send the kingdom now? Lord, what sign is going to be attending the coming of the kingdom? What sign will you show us that the kingdom of com is coming? You know, you know, we want it. We want to see that kingdom come. Well, the promise of God was all throughout the Old Testament that the kingdom was coming. But if you think about it, the promise about the kingdom and some of the things about the kingdom that we think about or that even these people would have thought about would be from the book of Daniel. Because it was in Daniel that King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. Do you remember? Daniel chapter 2. And in his dream, there was a dream that came along and that dream upset him. The dream was so upsetting that he said to the king, to his wise men and to his counselors, I want you guys to tell me what this dream means. I want you to tell me the dream and what it means and I want to understand it because I'm worried about what this dream is. He wanted the interpretation of that dream because the dream was scary to him. In chapter 2 of Daniel, you know, there's this dream. And here's what it was all about. Daniel, um, Daniel was telling, was revealing the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And it was a dream about a big statue. And this big statue was a statue of a king, but it was an awesome statue because that statue, uh, in the statue, the man had this head of gold. And then he had a breastplate and arms of silver. And then he had a midsection of bronze. And then he had legs of iron and feet of both iron and clay. Now Nebuchadnezzar understood that that statue was symbolic of the fact of his kingdom. His kingdom. That's what he was worried about, that this represented his kingdom. Well, it actually represented several kingdoms. But he realizes that it says something to say about his kingdom as well. At the end of the dream, there was this rock or this great big stone, and it was cut out of a mountain, and it was cut out without human hands. And so that stone comes along and all of a sudden that stone strikes the statue and it becomes, and, and the statue gets kind of wiped out. And then that last kingdom becomes greater and takes over the whole earth. 
Well, Nebuchadnezzar was disturbed about the dream, and you know from reading Daniel that he was so disturbed about the dream that he said to each of his wise men, if you don't tell me what this dream is and what it means and what I'm supposed to do about this, then I'm going to kill all of you guys. If you can't tell me what this means, maybe this means that you're not trying to tell me what it means. You're hiding it from me. So I want you to tell me what it means or I'm going to kill the whole lot of you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was angry and he was afraid. He was afraid because of his kingdom and his kingship. He wanted to know what the kingdom was. He wanted to know if there was a kingdom that was going to replace him and who it was. You know, kind of like Herod, he probably wanted to get rid of him. He wanted to send his soldiers out and get rid of whoever was going to cause another kingdom to come and take over his. Well, we would all probably want to know if we were the king. But in Daniel chapter 2, God called Nebuchadnezzar, and he told him that a series of kingdoms would come and go, but one day the God of heaven would come and set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed, and God's kingdom would bring an end to every other kingdom. That was the interpretation. God's kingdom is going to come along. It's going to be greater than any other kingdom, and it's going to destroy every other kingdom in its way. And that kingdom, God's kingdom, is going to last forever. Well, these people that knew the Old Testament and that longed for God's kingdom and God's Messiah to come would have been excited. And it's, it reminds us of what Paul said in chapter 3 of Philippians, where Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation into conformity with the body of His glory by the power He has even to subject all things to Himself. You see, this is the real kingdom. This is where our real citizenship is. You see, if you're a part of the kingdom, you're part of a kingdom which has a true king, and that kingdom can never be wiped out. It's never going to be replaced. And our friends who are suffering in other parts of the world for their faith, our friends who are suffering in China, our friends who, who may be suffering in parts of Africa and India and Asia, other places in Asia, we know that they take great comfort from the book of Daniel. They take great comfort from the fact that God's kingdom is going to last forever. God's kingdom is going to come. God's kingdom is blowing down the doors of all the other kingdoms, and nothing can ever supplant God's kingdom. Nothing can ever remove it. And though they suffer, like many of these Chinese Christians that we've read about who are suffering for their faith, when they suffer, they know that the kingdom can't be destroyed. The kingdom we belong to can't be destroyed because our king is never going to be supplanted, the Lord Jesus Christ. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were looking for their king to come. They were looking for the good news of the kingdom. And we are too, because that's our only hope. That's our hope. Not that the United States government is going to last. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. There are all kinds of things around us that are going to come and go, but the kingdom that's going to last forever is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, when Jesus came, what did he tell us about the kingdom? Well, if you have your Bible and you want to turn with me, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. I want to read you a little bit from this chapter, verses 26 to 29. Mark 4, 26 to 29. Listen to this parable. And he was saying, verse 26, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up uh, by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, and then the head, and then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits... He immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying no one can control God's kingdom because no one knows when or where it will sprout up. No one knows when or where the kingdom of God will sprout up. In the Greek it literally says, On its own the soil was bearing fruit. Because God's kingdom is going to pop up in all kinds of places and at all kinds of times. Now, I served for uh, 11 years as a missionary with Mission to the World, our PCA mission agency. And during those times, my job was to work with West African church leaders. The church leaders from Senegal and Ivory Coast and Togo and Gambia and Guinea-Bissau and now Sierra Leone and Burkina Faso. So we're in a bunch of countries in West, in West Africa. They're most often predominantly Muslim countries. Some of them, like Senegal and Gambia, are more than 90% Muslim in their uh, religion, uh, in, in the religion in which most people are trained. Now during the time, I saw some big changes in West Africa. When my boss, Frank Sindler, who's been uh, who's been, who, we've seen the video one Wednesday night, we've seen the video of Frank. Frank started working in Senegal in West Africa in 1996. During those years, you could say in Senegal, a country of 10 million people, there were only a thousand, now a thousand out of 10 million, who were classified as evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians. That was what was true in the late 90s. But I asked Frank yesterday for some figures, and he said a few years ago uh, he found out that there were at least 35,000 believers. Now in 20 years, a little bit more than 20 years, the church in Senegal has grown 35 times what it was in 1996. Can you imagine what it would be like if the church in the U.S. had grown 35 times what it was in 96, can you imagine? I mean, God is at work. Uh, I asked Frank for some more figures about Africa, about the continent, because the continent is supposed to be, within the next few years, up to 50% Christian. And Frank told me this. He said, every year in Africa alone, 23 million people come in to the church. Every year, 23 million people join or unite 
with the church in Africa. They're estimating there were, when I knew the figures, it was something like 385 million Christians. I'm sure it's 500 million now on the continent. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the growth of the kingdom? The kingdom sprouts up in unexpected places. It starts growing slowly. For many years, I had a, a, a missionary friend, uh, Gene Toombs. Gene Toombs worked with United World Mission. And he taught in a Christian school in Senegal in those years where there were less than 1,000 believers. And Gene says, well, I've been here for many, many years and haven't seen much of all happen. But after 1996, that was when things started to change. We went from having seven churches when I first started with Mission to the World to over 50 when I left. And that was in 2014. So you can see what God is doing. God is doing an amazing thing where He's gathering people. He's gathering people into His kingdom. He's gathering people to know His name, to love Him, to embrace Him. In Matthew chapter 13, which we read this morning, it says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is one of the smallest seeds. And he says, but that seed grew up and became larger than any of the other garden plants. Even the birds nested in it. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. And it's also like leaven, or we'd say yeast. Uh, you know, you put just a little bit of yeast in. You take a packet of yeast and you put it in. You mix it with hot water and you put it in with your bread flour. And you put that bread into the oven on a warm oven and let it rise. And that yeast will affect all of that bread flour. And pretty soon that will all rise and you can make bread out of it. That's how the kingdom of God grows. D.A. Carson uh, says this in one of his commentaries about the principles of the kingdom. He says there's three basic principles for the kingdom. He says like yeast, the kingdom operates from small beginnings and it works quietly. And then yeast also suggests that the kingdom of God transforms society. And the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed because it grows extensively. So there's the intensive inside growth that the kingdom of God does when it hits an individual, when a person becomes a new person in Jesus Christ. There's that inner transformation. And then we also see like the mustard seed that where the gospel of Christ grows, it goes out and it grows and it grows and it touches other lives. We, I was visiting with someone the other day and they were saying, yes, I had the opportunity to witness to someone and give them a Bible and then they took the Bible and read it, and then they became a Christian, and then members of their family became Christian. And now several throughout that whole family have become Christians. That's not an uncommon story. It's not an uncommon story at all, is it? You see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, it, infects us on the, it, it affects us on the inside, and then it's extensive because it starts to spread. And it starts to spread to others, just like in Senegal and in the continent of Africa. In the 1960s, <clears throat> there was a man by the name of Sam Patterson who was a Presbyterian U.S. pastor. He was over a children's home in North Mississippi. And Sam Patterson was concerned 
along with some other elders in the Presbyterian Church U.S., because the four Southern Presbyterian seminaries had written about, the, they were written about in an article in the Presbyterian Outlook. And it said in that article in the Outlook that no Presbyterian seminary, Southern Presbyterian Seminary in 1960s, believed in the authority and the integrity and the inspiration, infallibility of the scriptures as the word of God. That broke Sam Patterson's heart. Sam Patterson had some friends who were like him, who were taking the gospel and seeing changes in the church, and he was deeply concerned. And he said, if the, our seminaries are going this way, what's going to happen to our churches? He says, the churches will be taught by ministers who don't believe the word of God, who don't believe that it's authoritative. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the miracles. They don't believe in the blood atonement. Well, what's going to happen to us if that takes place in the seminaries? It's already taken place in our seminaries, so what are we going to do about it? In 1963, Sam Patterson met with four other men in a motel in Memphis, Tennessee, and he got together and they prayed. And during that time, they prayed that God would raise up a seminary faithful to the scriptures, true to the scriptures and the Reformed faith. And in 1967, they started that seminary because somebody, God had moved in someone's heart and gave them 14 acres of land in Jackson, Mississippi, and an old colonial white house. They didn't have anything but that, but they started there teaching students there, 14 students, 1967. That was Reformed Seminary. Now they have eight campuses all across the U.S., and they have uh, RTS Global, um, and thousands of graduates, and of those graduates, there are people that have gone to missions, there are people who have gone to the church, and hundreds and hundreds of them are now in what we call the Presbyterian Church in America. Things start slow. Things start slow, but they expand, and the kingdom grows, and people's lives are touched. And they're not only touched intensively, inside, but extensively, because it's spreading, and it's spreading and it's spreading, like those 23 million people who are coming every year into the church in Africa. And who all knows where it's going in every other place. The apostle, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is telling us that the gospel is transforming lives around us, the gospel of the kingdom. Because what happens when the gospel of the kingdom is preached? Well, here's what happens to society. Jesus told John the Baptist this. He said, are you the one? John says, are you the one we listen to? Or is somebody else coming? Is the Messiah coming? Are you him? Or is somebody else coming? He says, you tell him the blind see, the lame walk. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And the prisoners are set free. You see what's happening is the gospel of the kingdom is affecting lives here and there and there. It's happening on the inside. It's happening on the outside. The gospel of the kingdom is growing and it's a worthwhile kingdom. Well, the kingdom of God starts small and it grows extensively and the kingdom of God transforms us on the inside. But 
For us to be in the kingdom of God, we have to be anchored on the rock. That's exactly what the scripture is telling us. Now, we started this morning in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had this vision about a rock, didn't he? And that rock was cut out of the mountain without hands. That rock came along and smashed the statue. In other words, the kingdoms of the world were destroyed by this rock. What do you think that rock symbolizes? Well, the rock symbolizes, of course, the kingdom of God, but it also reminds us of the king of the kingdom. Because the king of the kingdom is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because you remember in the Old Testament when Moses and the people were without water and Moses goes to the place and God says to him, strike the rock. And he strikes the rock and water comes out and the needs of the people are met because they were thirsty and then they could drink and then they could be satisfied and then they could have their thirst satisfied by the water from the rock. When we come to the New Testament, the New Testament says that rock was Christ. Christ is the rock that was struck. He's the rock that was struck on the cross. God the Father allowed him to be struck so that he could be struck for us. He was struck for us on the cross so that he could bear the penalty for our own sins, so that he could pay the price, so that he could die the death that we deserve to die, so that he could be raised up in victory, so that he could conquer death and hell for us and for all who trust in him. You see, Christ is the rock that we have to be attached to. Christ is the rock that we have to be grounded on. We have to be grounded on that rock. In order to have the kingdom, you have to have the king. In order to be part of the kingdom, you have to be grounded and founded upon the rock who is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. You remember the scripture tells us Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the rock upon which the church is founded. So you can't cut the foundations away. You can't get rid of everything else. You can't say, oh, well, we're the church that accepts everybody. Jesus Christ is too exclusive. We can't have an exclusive Savior. We've got to have an inclusive. We've got to welcome everybody. Well, we do welcome everybody. But we welcome everybody to place their trust in the rock who's Jesus Christ. Because God didn't send Buddha to the cross to die for our sins. God didn't send Muhammad to die on the cross to bear our sins. Those guys didn't want to die at all like that. Jesus came to die for us because he loved us with a love greater than we can ever imagine. A love that is so great that we have to rest our eternal hopes in nothing else but the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told a parable after he told the he concluded the parable after he told it about the vineyard. And he closed by saying, Haven't you read that the stone which the builders rejected, this one became the chief cornerstone? That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of our Christian faith. And if you trust in him, he becomes your refuge and the place of refuge from the storms of hell and judgment. But if you turn your back on Jesus and refuse to trust him as your Savior and the Lord, it says he becomes the rock of stumbling and the rock of offense, and you end up being crushed by it. If you reject the one who is to be the rock and cornerstone of your life, if you try to put something else in its place, 
success, hopes, money, marriage, romantic relationships. If you put anything else in the place of the cornerstone, you're going to trip over it and be broken and be crushed by it. God will have no other in number one but the Lord Jesus Christ putting him as number one in our lives. All who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are those who will never be dismissed and turned away. Have you said in your heart, I want to be part of that kingdom because of what Jesus has done for me? Have you anchored your life on the cross? Have you anchored your life on the rock who is the cornerstone of our faith? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the great cornerstone, the one who is the basis upon which we live, the one whose word is the basis upon which we live our lives. We thank you that your word is true and that you've told us about what the kingdom is and that the kingdom is coming and our king is coming. And so, Father, we look forward to that day when King Jesus will come and transform this world and make it from a kingdom of sadness and fears and worry and loss into the kingdom of peace and glory and resurrection. And we rest our hopes in our Savior Jesus this morning. We thank you for him in his name. Amen.